And those notes are for our series, the title of which is on the front cover of the notes and on the screen, Stolen Identity, and we'll explain that in just a bit. But I welcome you all, and I want to just run through very quickly some things that are coming up. One is this Wednesday, we resume our midweek program. I say resume because last Wednesday we did not meet because of the Easter break. Uh, on Wednesdays, we have a full complement of ministries for all, all ages, so no matter where you fit in, we have something for you. If you have children, if you have uh, infants, toddlers, we have care for, for them. So that's all at 7 o'clock on uh, Wednesdays. That resumes this week. And then going into next month, just uh, mark your uh, calendar, uh, some of you, long range for May the 26th, May the 26th, because after we finish this series, then I will take a group of you who are newcomers, if you're so inclined, and we hope you are, to what we call our newcomers orientation. And we do that a few times a year for four weeks to explain who we are and where we've come from, what we believe, where we hope uh, to go in the future. And it's strictly for information for you to help you decide if this would be the place that God would have you to, to serve. As Pastor Matt mentions every time he announces that, it's a no-pressure thing, and most of you have gone through that, and so you know that I'm telling the truth when I say that. When you're done with that, we leave it up to you as to what you want to do with the information you've received. We don't follow up and contact you or hassle you in, in any way. But we think that everybody should be connected to a Bible-believing, Bible-teaching, biblically-motivated uh, for mission church. And we think that God has given us such a church. And so if this would be the place that God would have you, you need to make that decision with adequate information. So our newcomer's orientation, which is what that class is called, is designed to give you that, that information. It will be May 26th uh, for four weeks during this hour after we complete uh, this series, okay? So mark that, and if you fit in the newcomer's category, meaning you've never taken the newcomer's orientation, then I would encourage you to think about doing that, all right? Okay, let me get this out of the way. For those of you who weren't here the first hour, I mentioned during the first hour, there is not a demon-possessed raccoon in the, in the ductwork, though it sounds that way. But uh, when you have a day of high winds, which this is the first Sunday of nine now that we've been in this building where we've had high winds on a Sunday morning, so it's the first time you all have heard it. I've heard it many times during the week here and just prayed we wouldn't have uh, high winds on a Sunday. Well, it shows you what my prayers do. <laughs> so it was bound to happen, right? And uh, that will be fixed when we put uh, rooftop units on it uh, for this summer, rooftop air conditioning units which is going to happen. The reason that's happening now is because there's just a cover up there awaiting the rooftop units. That cover is apparently not affixed well enough so that when you have high winds, it rattles like that. This one rattles. doesn't sound like that one does, so uh, the folks who put it in apparently did a better job with that one than, than this one. So that's what that is. It's annoying, but uh, we'll have to put up with it today and for a few weeks until we get those uh, rooftop units up there. So thanks for your indulgence with that. All right, today we begin a six-week series, uh, Stolen Identity. Who does God really say that I am? Why are we doing this? Because as you, uh, if you've been around for any number of weeks uh, at our church, you have heard me say numerous times that ideas have consequences. My ideas about myself, my ideas about other people, 
have consequences for me and have consequences for how I view and then in turn how I treat those other people. So the reason we're devoting six weeks to a series on who am I really, who does God say that I am, is because a proper understanding of that will have good consequences for you and your view of others. An improper understanding of who you are will conversely have negative consequences for you and those with whom you're, you're in relationship. And so why are we doing it? Well, one, because ideas have consequences, and the ideas that each of us has about ourselves matter. But also because all of us lives out of a sense of identity. We may not consciously do that, but we all do. We all live every day with a sense of identity, of, of who we are. A lot of times we get our identity from our situation, our situation. So things like if someone is, and if you fit in this category, then I, I certainly mean no offense, it's just an illustration, but if, if someone is newly divorced, one of the things that the traps that you can easily fall into is to gain your identity from your divorce status. When you, when you talk to people, one of the first things you say is, I'm a divorcee. You let people know that this is, this is what I am, this is, the, this is the struggle that I have, this is the situation that I'm in. Or uh, if you struggle with alcohol, you can take that on as your identity. And so it is, it is very possible for us to take some characteristic of our situation and make that completely or mostly our identity. And that affects then the way we see ourselves and the way we see our lives and the way we pursue things. You know, uh, now I'm, I'm living my life through the lens of this, this situation. Or I may have a very high view of myself and all of my accomplishments. So who am I? Well, maybe it's my situation. I'm divorced or I'm an alcoholic. Or I'm just simply the best and people just need to find that out. Okay? And I'm just on a mission to bless people with my presence and my knowledge and my intellect and my humor and, and all of that. So everybody lives out of a sense of identity. Sometimes it's the way we perceive our situation. Sometimes, often, our identity is, uh, is wrapped up in what we do. So when you meet someone at a party or a gathering, what's one of the first things you say? So you give your name and then say, so what do you, what do you do? And it's very easy to have your identity wrapped up in what you do. Your career. Uh, it, it may not be a, it may be a career at home. So your career may be uh, being a housewife, which is a very admirable career. I know a gal in my house that has that career. She does a very good job with it. So it's a very admirable career. But nevertheless, even with that, you can wrap up your identity completely in what you do whether in the home or outside of the home, in your career, whether a male or a female, whoever we are. We're so uh, wired to do this, see ourselves in terms of what we do, that if what we are doing we deem to be less than our peers, we're often embarrassed by it. So if somebody says, what do you do? You might add the word just. I'm just a housewife. Well, what does that mean? Actually, that's a very noble thing. 
But if you don't see it that way, and your identity is wrapped up in what you do, then I'm, I'm just a housewife, or I'm just a, you know, a steel worker, or I'm just a whatever it is. So you can see your identity in terms of your situation, in terms of what you do. You can see it in terms of uh, the group that you're associated with. You may have a good or a bad view of yourself and your identity based upon your family. If your family is prominent, if your family is, is good and loving and, and well-known and you were well cared for and, and people know that, then you're very glad to have your identity tied up in your last name, your family. Or conversely, if you had a, a very difficult upbringing or there are things that have been done by family members to shame the family, then you're, you want to cover that identity. So you can, your identity can be wrapped up in the group of family or your colleagues, which in turn affects the way you behave. I want to impress them. I want to make sure that they know or at least think that I measure up and I can speak their language and I can keep up. Your identity might be wrapped up in your team. Have you ever thought about why people so get, get so rabidly wrapped up in teams that they don't play on, that they'll never hope to play on? I mean, I'm a, I'm a sports fan myself. I am watching with great interest the uh, March Madness. I, as of last night, I don't like to brag, but I'm number 38 out of 2,849 people in my bracket. If Louisville wins on Monday, I'm going to be in the top 1%. Now, what do I get out of that? Nothing. Other than to tell you guys I'm in the top 1%. This is my identity, baby. I lost some points because Ohio State lost. I made the mistake of picking Ohio State to win. Not to win at all, just to win a game. And they lost this game that they, they should have won. Now, many of you know that Pastor Matt is from Columbus, Ohio area. So I take every chance I get to needle him about that. So Michigan is in the final Monday. Ohio State is not. And not only are they not, I lost points because of stupid Ohio State. <laughs> this is recorded, and you make sure Pastor Matt listens, all right? I have, an Ohio State I have a quick Ohio State joke for you. So a Michigan grad is at a party. Zach, you're an Ohio State fan too, aren't you? <laughs> because the Bible says a little leaven leavens the entire lump. So. so a Michigan grad is at this party, and he says to the guy next to him, I've got an Ohio State joke. And the guy says, well, listen, before you tell that joke, you need to know that I'm 6'3", I weigh 230, and I'm an Ohio State graduate. And he says the, the guy next to me is 6'2", 220, he's also from Ohio State. And the third guy, yep, you guessed it, he's a big guy, and he's also from Ohio State. So you still want to tell that joke? And the Michigan guy says, well, I guess not if I'm going to have to explain it three times. <laughs> I'm just saying. So you have your identity wrapped up in Go Blue or whatever, whatever it is. Or maybe, this is why people join gangs. To be identified with something 
outside of themselves, something bigger than themselves that they haven't found somewhere else. So it may be a group, family, colleagues, team, gang. And all of that is about who I'm trying to make myself to be. But the question for this series, though, is who am I? Stripped of all of the external stuff, who am I? Because those situations, our occupations, whatever we do, the group that we're identified with, those are all things that I'm trying to become, that I'm trying to make myself to be. But the question at bottom that we really need to answer is, who am I without all those trappings? Now think about this. All of those things, the things I do, the people I'm associated with, the situation I'm in, if I get my identity out of that kind of stuff, hear this, hear this well. Every one of those things can and will change. And then who will you be? You see it in just simple stuff like empty nest. When, when the kids leave, when the last child leaves and the nest is now empty, people whose entire identity has been wrapped up in, I'm the mother or father of these children, now when that relationship changes, what do I do? Or somebody whose identity is wrapped up in what they do in their career at work, and then they retire. And they think they've been looking forward to retirement, and then they retire and they don't know what to do. Do you know statistics say that the average person dies five years after they retire. You've been working all that time for the golden years, then you retire, and within five years on average. Now, if you, if you retire and you have a sense of purpose after you retire in something other than the career you were in, it's a different ballgame. In fact, we have a lot of retirees, I thank the Lord for them in our, in our church, our seniors, who have found purpose in serving the mission of Jesus through his church. And they're using that time that they invested in a company, they're investing in a company called Great Commission Incorporated, which is a beautiful thing. But if you don't have that, you have nothing to replace where you put your identity when that changes. Or if your identity is in what you do and now you no longer have the health to do it, or your identity is in how you look, that will change. So all of those things that I've talked about, they can and they will change. And it'll affect how you view yourself then and how you feel about yourself and in turn have consequences, negative or positive, very often negative. Our identity, how we see ourselves, is a huge issue, as I've tried to lay out, but also how we see other people. The identity that we assign to other people. Now, it may seem simple for those of you here to simply say, as I look at other people, the broadest category in which I place people and with which I identify them is the human family. We are, we're all human. So when I look at somebody else, I don't look at them as better or worse than me. I look at them as like me because we're all ultimately in the same family. Well, that would be a good answer if you did that. As we're going to see, that would be a biblical way to look at other people. But did you know most people don't look at it that way? I mean, there's human and then there's human. There's really and fully human, and then there's less than that. Now, of course, we know historically there have been groups of people who have been assigned less than human status, right? 
racial identity. So if someone is of a particular race, they are less than, and we, and we see them that way, and we identify them that way, and that has consequences for how we interact with, with them. But I also want you to consider that the way we are teaching where we came from also tends in the direction of separating the human family along the lines of better and worse. Anybody, you all have heard the phrase survival of the, right? Now you just think about, I mean, there's, Herbert Spencer was the guy who started something called social Darwinism. I mean, there's Darwin and Darwinism, but then there's social Darwinism, and that is the implications of Darwinian theory on society. And you think about that. Aren't there people in every society who aren't equipped to survive without the help of other people? But if your view is that genetics makes you what you are, that we are all cosmic accidents, and what makes things progress and move forward is survival of the fittest, then do not be surprised at all when there's a devaluation of some human life. Handicapped human life? You can have all sorts of categories. So how we view ourselves matters. How we view other people has extreme consequences. What does the Bible teach about us collectively? Well, we're going to see it in some detail in the notes that you've been given in the weeks ahead. But just for now, I don't think it'll surprise any or most of you here that the Bible teaches that we all come from the same place and we all have the same intrinsic value before God because we are all made specially in the image of God. Christianity teaches that. Not your biology teacher. Christianity. All are made in the image of God. All the human family. Equal, intrinsically before God. Therefore, all human life valuable whether in the womb or outside of the womb, whether handicapped or able to run a marathon, all of equal value because we are all made in the image of God. Further, the Bible also teaches that we all are of the same family, all of us. No matter our pigmentation, Acts chapter 17, if you don't have your Bible, it's okay, just listen as I read. Acts 17 and verse 24. This is Paul speaking before philosophers in Athens, Greece. And here's what he says to them. These idolatrous, frankly clueless philosophers. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. And he does not live in temples made by, built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. Now notice verse 26 in this first line. From one man he made every nation of men. So who's your daddy? Ultimately, it doesn't matter who you are, doesn't matter where you are on earth, we've all got the same human father. 
From one man he made every nation of men. The King James says of one blood. We are all of one blood. And the Bible actually teaches that. So the Bible teaches that all people are to be identified as fully human because made in the image of God and therefore have intrinsic worth. Not because of what they do, not because of the group they're identified with, but because God has made them with that value. And further, that we are all of the same family. So it is impossible. <laughs> it is impossible to adopt racist views from the Bible. Now you can adopt them and then distort the Bible, and Lord knows many people have done that. But in order to adopt those views, you have to distort what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches we all come from and are in the same family. So how we identify ourselves has, has consequences for us and for how we see others and then how we live our lives. That's why we're doing a series called Stolen Identity. Who does God say I really am? Page one, then, in your notes. Americans are frequently reminded about how important it is to value themselves. Self-esteem is pushed in the popular media and school, even by the government. According to that great theologian, Whitney Houston, learning to love yourself is the greatest love of all. The Bible says, Jesus said, greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. So I'll go with Jesus you can go with Whitney if you want to. Most people love themselves pretty well. But what does the Bible teach about how we view ourselves? And in particular, in this first portion, we're going to look at the notion of self-love and self-esteem. In this short series, we'll survey the history of this current self-esteem movement, study key passages of Scripture that self-love proponents use to support their view, analyze several different criteria for assessing ourselves and our self-worth, and build a biblical model of self-image, self-love, and self-confidence. We'll try to provide guidelines and instruction for helping those whose self-image does not align with Scripture. Either it's too high or too low. What we want to do is expose the falsity of today's self-love teaching, correct those views, root our self-image in the gospel, and then equip believers to pass on this life-giving message. So we've got six lessons. One today, where did we get this idea? And then what does the Bible say? And then we're going to look at some options. And in particular, when we get to lesson five, we want to see the biblical view of our self-identity. And then lastly, how we can help others. We've got some selected bibliography for you there, which would be worth your getting and reading if you're so inclined. And so we are going to start now on page two, and we are going to identify some false views of the way we are to identify ourselves, and we're going to look at where they came from. Now, why are we going to do that? Why are we going to spend time, or perhaps you may think waste time, on doing that? Well, you know, it's important that those who attend this class come away with an understanding of where you acquired your view of yourself. And it may surprise you as to where you got some of the notions that you have about who you are from the culture. And so we want to identify those so that you can see where they may be misaligned with what God says in, in Scripture. And if you have a false view 
I would think we would want to know about that, right? I mean, really, think about it. If you go to the doctor, <laughs> you want him to get the diagnosis right, don't you? So we want to diagnose this issue of who we are, what's our identity, accurately. And so to that end, we're going to identify, identify some inaccurate views of who we are. Page 2. Here you have the lyrics to three hymns. Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my Sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, am found was blind, but now I see. Upon the cross of Jesus, mine eye at times can see the very dying form of one who suffered there for me. And from my smitten heart with tears to wonders, I confess the wonders of his glorious love and my own worthlessness. Well, worm, wretch, worthless. That's what we're all about. Making people happy when they come to, come to church. Now, are those hymns accurate? We're going to see that they are from a biblical standpoint. You know, you see this, this view of ourselves vis-a-vis -vis God and His character and His holiness versus what we have become in our sinfulness. You see it in Isaiah chapter 6. Some of you are familiar with that. In Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 1, the Bible says, Isaiah, the prophet says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. And then he has this vision of the majesty of the king on his throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And around him there were seraphim flying, and they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And in response to this vision of the holiness of God, what does Isaiah the prophet do? You all remember? He falls down and he says, Woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. He's got his own self-identity and he's got the self-identity for other people too. too. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell amongst the people of unclean lips. And I see this most vividly in comparison to the holy character of God. And yet, as we're going to see momentarily, you have a number of Christian teachers now who have, who have adopted the idea that Isaiah should not have had that view of himself. They would say to Isaiah, hey, get up. Get a grip. You're not that, you're not that bad. And we say here in the middle of page 2, historically Christianity has taken a very low view of human, the human condition without God and Christ. Both biblical writers and hymn writers commonly describe mankind with words like worm and wretch. Christians did not shy away from such descriptions because they fully understood the depths of man's depravity or sinfulness. Now contrast that with this statement from Robert Schuller. You all know who Robert Schuller is? Crystal Cathedral. Crystal Cathedral's now been sold to a, a, a Roman Catholic ministry. Um, Robert Schuller is now, now retired. But Robert Schuller uh, was not trained in theology. Many people don't know that. He was trained in psychology. And he wrote a book called Self-Esteem, uh, The New Reformation. And in that book, quoted in John MacArthur's book that I have in your bibliography, he says, sin is any act, I should say, or thought, 
that robs myself or another human being of his or her self-esteem. Now just stop there for a second. (laughs) Can anybody find a verse even remotely close to that in Scripture that would define sin that way? Any act or thought that robs myself or another human being of his or her self-esteem. The most serious sin is the one that causes me to say I'm unworthy. I have may, I have I may have no claim to divine sonship if you examine me at my worst. For once a person believes he is an unworthy sinner, it is doubtful he can really honestly accept the saving grace God offers in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. Now, those of you that have done a cursory reading through the Bible might be inclined to say, as, as I would, that it's impossible for you to receive the grace of Jesus without saying that. Without coming completely empty-handed. That's why Jesus said in the, his famous Sermon on the Mount, and he began that sermon with what we call the Beatitudes, blessed are those, and he begins with, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the spiritually impoverished because God is the one who in turn enriches their poverty. But they come with empty hands. Even the secular media have noted the change in Christian writing and thought. Newsweek. The notion of self-esteem may put off anyone old enough to remember when Christian as an adjective was often followed by humility. But American churches, which once did not shrink from calling their congregants wretches, have moved toward a more congenial view of human nature. Chastising sinners is considered counterproductive. It makes them feel worse about themselves. So you have a whole now generation of preachers, TV preachers and otherwise, who have adopted this sort of approach. And... You know, we quote a few people here. We're not going to spend all our time quoting other people and bashing other people. We try not to do that gratuitously, but I do try to do that pastorally to warn you. And I would, I would just say straight up, dear friends, if you must watch Joel Olstein, ask yourself, is there really any difference between what he is saying and any other self-help guru? You could say everything that he's saying without Jesus and without the Bible. Think good thoughts about yourself. Be positive about yourself. Every message that I have ever seen is about exactly the same thing. So when did, bottom of page two, this switch in Christian thinking take place? What motivated it? To better respond, we need to understand its roots. And so if you look at page three, the history of psychological theories. We'll quickly go through these. Some of you are familiar with them. But what you may not know is that these theories, secular though they be, have made inroads into Christian thinking. So you have Adler and Maslow. Adler taught that humans have certain basic needs for things like security and significance that must be met before they can reach higher levels of personal satisfaction and fulfillment. Maslow expanded on this idea and developed a hierarchical structure of needs that culminates with self-actualization, reaching my ultimate potential and the point at which I can contribute significantly to society. This forms the basis of the idea that one must love himself before he can extend love to others. Now, just stop there. See, so I've got to have all this stuff in place before I can then, out of what I have, invest in others. So before I can love others, I've got to love myself is, is the idea. We'll see why that's wrong uh, later. 
Maslow's fully developed structure, his hierarchy of needs looks like this. I've got to have my physiological needs met, my needs for safety and security, for love and belonging, for self-esteem, and then I can act upon uh, the self that I perceive myself to be and am. So if you care to just write down a phrase that would define a person from Maslow's point of view, it's, it's an empty cup. The person is an empty cup that has to have stuff put in it in order for them to then be able to pour out of it. You've got to have this stuff put in it. So this view of the self, the identity, is an empty cup that's got to be filled up with the right stuff. Then you've got Carl Rogers. Rogers theorized that all individuals have a natural self-actualizing tendency, kind of like the internal guidance system in a guided missile. The self-actualization actualizing tendency naturally leads us onward toward fulfillment and meaning of life. Our guidance system can be interrupted, however, by significant others, people like parents, teachers, and friends. Now, how can other people prevent us from self-actualizing? We all need to feel accepted by our significant others. But if these people accept us only with certain conditions, we might start to conform to what they want us to do instead of what our self-actualizing tendency is telling us to do. The answer for people with this problem is to find a significant other, often a therapist, who will provide an unconditional acceptance so that their internal guidance system can take over again and lead them toward ultimate fulfillment. So this is then the popularity of non-judgmental, right? We just accept wherever you are. Now, that may sound right. We use the phrase unconditional love. And as far as it goes, and if properly understood, I agree with it. But if understood this way, I don't agree with it. That we simply accept whatever someone is, wherever someone is. So I like the phrase of Christian counselor, let me rephrase that, biblical counselor David Paulison, who says that God's love for us is better than unconditional. Because God does not leave us where we are. His love motivates him to move us where we need to go. And if we love other people, that's what we'll do. But, of course, Carl Rogers has no such biblical Christian standard. And so who am I to say whether what this person is or what they aspire to be is good or bad or right or wrong? They have their own self-actualizing tendency. Other people can harm that by judging them by not giving them unconditional acceptance as he defines it. And so in the Maslow approach, the person is an empty cup. And in, in Roger's approach, I'll stay with the cup again, the person is a damaged cup. So how do you view people? Well, they've been damaged. How have they been damaged? By other people who have not accepted them unconditionally. And then you have, top of page four, B.F. Skinner, the father of the behaviorist school of psychology, in which human behavior is explained in terms of physiological responses to external stimuli. In other words, behaviorists teach that human behavior is little more than responses to stimuli. Humans will behave according to their training and conditioning. So man is like a robot. He follows the program given to him. One should not blame himself, according to the behaviorists, if he's been badly programmed. So, you know, I, I'm trying to stay with a cup illustration, but 
You know, so you got the empty cup, you got the damaged cup, and here you got like a mechanical cup. You know, that operates according to programming, does what it does if it is properly programmed. But if not, it will go haywire, says Skinner and the behaviorists. Now, here's what I want you to notice about all three of these. All three of them have something in common. They all three place the problem that people have, whatever manifestations they are, they place those problems external to the person, outside of the individual. So the problem is not me. The problem is what has been done to me or the problem is what has not been done for me in terms of programming or filling up the cup. But in all of them, the problem is outside of us. So then how does this get adapted to Christianity? So and the bit you know about the Bible then, ask yourself, is that what I see in Scripture? That God, as He gives us our proper identity, identifies us and our issues and what motivates us and our problems, that he, he locates those outside of us primarily? Or does he locate those inside of us? We'll see the answer, but I'm just letting you ponder that. But this has been adapted by Christianity then. Many Christians have accepted the self-love theories of modern psychology, many without even knowing it. But many do know it trained in Christian psychology and know precisely from where their teaching originates. Now notice we have Christian in quotation marks and I've made this distinction before but it bears repeating in this context that I encourage you if as you need counsel and we all need counsel, we all need help from one another and from others who have lived and have wisdom to impart that you seek counsel from someone who is a biblical counselor. There's a difference, unfortunately, between being a biblical counselor and a Christian counselor. A Christian counselor is simply someone who is a Christian. And the content of their counsel may or may not come from the Bible. You say, well, how would a Christian not counsel from the Bible? Well, we'll see in a minute. Because they've adapted theories from other people. That's how. So I always maintain the distinction between a biblical counselor and a Christian counselor. A biblical counselor will always be a Christian counselor, but not every Christian counselor is a biblical counselor. So how has this been adapted by Christianity? Well, going back to one of the fathers of Christian integrationist psychology, Bruce Naramore, He says, under the influence of Carl Rogers and Abraham Maslow, many of us Christians have begun to see our need for self-love and self-esteem. The Bible commands us to love God and to love others. Jesus called these commands the greatest and the second greatest commandments. They apply to all believers in all circumstances, no matter how one feels about himself. But modern interpreters have put a psychologized spin on them. Self-love is thus the prerequisite and the criterion for our conduct toward other, towards our neighbor. Without self-love, there can be no love for others. You cannot love your neighbor, you cannot love God, unless you first love yourself. Our ability to love God and to love our neighbor is limited by our ability to love ourselves. We cannot love God more 
then we love our neighbor, and we cannot love our neighbor more than we love ourselves. People who have poor self-image, who fail to realize their own self-worth, who are always belittling themselves, these people usually have difficulty in loving others properly. Thus, the Bible's command becomes, so love yourself, Christian, as you should love others. So, again, in your cursory reading of the Bible, have you ever found a command in the 66 books of the Bible, ever, one time, where God says, love yourself? The answer to that is no. So where does it come from? Well, all of these quotes are based upon Jesus giving the first and greatest commandment, and the second is, is like it. And you remember what Jesus said there, right? Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? He says, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all your mind, with all of your soul. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. So, how many commands are there there? These guys say there are three commands. Love God, love neighbor, love yourself. And here's the problem. Jesus does the math for you. After he says that, after he says, love your neighbor as yourself, this is what Jesus says. On these two commands hang all the law and the prophets. How many commands are there? And yet these guys have gotten a third command, to love yourself. So why is that? Page 5. One reason Christians have come to accept secular psychology as biblical truth is due to a false understanding of the slogan, all truth is God's truth. But the claim that all truth is God's truth is really only true if what we're presenting is in fact biblical truth. That is consistent with the full range of biblical teaching. So that phrase, of course, is correct. All truth is God's truth. But that then requires that we make sure that what we're presenting as truth is actually consistent with biblical truth. And if we say to people, you've got to love yourself because Maslow or Adler did studies and determined that you have to have these things met before you can self-actualize. And if that's true and all truth is God's truth, therefore it must be consistent with Scripture somehow. And therefore the Bible must say or at least imply that you're to love yourself. And so I issue that very serious and dire warning. All truth is God's truth. But make sure that what is being presented is actually truth as presented in Scripture. I have a long quote that I'll let you read on your own here from David Henderson about how we should approach the Bible in its totality. And so as we seek to think biblically then about ourselves and about others, how should we do that? On the first line, middle of page 5, I say extra-biblical does not necessarily mean unbiblical. Now, you know what I mean when I say that extra-biblical means outside the Bible. So because something is learned and gleaned from outside the Bible doesn't mean it's not true. It doesn't mean it's contrary to the Bible. It doesn't mean it's unbiblical. Extra-biblical does not necessarily mean unbiblical. Right? So everything that's directly affirmed in the Bible, if you believe Scripture is God's Word, everything directly affirmed in the Bible is true. But what we're saying here is there are things that are not directly affirmed in the Bible that we learn from outside the Bible that are also true. Extra-biblical does not mean necessarily unbiblical. 
So every proposition from outside the Bible needs, though, to be verified by whether or not it's consistent with the Bible. And the following principles will help us in that task of discerning truth from error in that which we get from outside the Bible. First principle is the Bible contains everything we need to know to live a godly life. So if, it were, if it's crucial for you to understand yourself, that you love yourself, then guess what? God would have told you that. If it's absolutely crucial for you to live and obey the commands that God has given, to love Him and love others, if, if in fact that's crucial for that, then God would have told you that. How do I know this? Well, we're going to start a series in a few weeks during our 9.30 hour through the book of 1 Peter. But in the first chapter of 1 Peter, we have lit, referenced for you here, uh, excuse me, 2 Peter, that God has given us everything that we need for life and godliness. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 17, all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So our first principle is the Bible contains what you need to know to live a godly life. Other facts about life, second principle, and the created realm may not be mentioned in the Bible but are still true and can still be discovered and known by men. That's what scientific inquiry is about. It's good and it's right. And even social scientific inquiry is good. But the conclusions have to be measured then against the truth of the Bible. All of these truths still originate with God since He is the creator of all things. Therefore, all true truth. And that was actually Francis Schaeffer's phrase. He found it necessary to, to put true in front of truth for these very kinds of reasons. And uh, so I'm stealing that phrase from him. But therefore, all true truth is indeed God's truth, whether in the disciplines of theology, science, medicine, finance, manufacturing, psychology, agriculture, art, music, whatever it is. And so I leave you then to ponder these questions, and we'll continue next week. Should I love myself? Does the Bible teach that I should love myself? That certain needs in my life must be met before I can reach out to others? That loving God and loving others depends on loving myself? And that we are worthy, we are worthy of unconditional love and acceptance. Think about those and we'll seek to answer them together next week and in the weeks ahead. Let's pray and ask the Lord to help us, all right? Father, we thank you that we can gather to think about these foundational issues, about human nature, about who we are, and about who we are, especially vis-a-vis -vis who you are. Lord, we need to see ourselves accurately, not lower than we are, not higher than we are, but to see us at ourselves as we are. And only you can tell us who we are because you are the one who precedes us and you are the one who has made us. And we see truth about ourselves in light and only in light of truth about and from you. So thank you for giving us the truth of your word so that we can see you there, so that we can see ourselves there, so that we can see others there, and we can live out of a true sense of identity day by day, moment by moment. Go with us this week now as we think about these matters. Help us to analyze the things that we think and the things that we say or have said to us.
and filter those through the prism of your truth. Grant us safety, we ask. Bring us back next Lord's Day in the name of Jesus. Amen.